Welcome to Queens Public Library's Hip Hop Series Podcast. This was recorded January 14, 2016. It's an interview with KRS-One and VJ Ralph McDaniels of Video Music Box. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for the brother, my man, KRS-One. Yes. Stand up. So much. Echo chamber going on. <laughs> He's taking it back, Chris. Wow, I'm actually here. So we are here um, at Queens Library. This is a, a brand new program, Chris. So just so you know, um, really didn't exist prior to this. We, you know, tried some things out. It worked. You know, we thought it was very cool, and I thought that the library would be a great opportunity for people to come in and kind of get some behind-the-scenes stories of folks that they may be familiar with or maybe they haven't heard of, and they get an idea of who these people are and how hip-hop became who it was, you know. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, Ralph, can you get the folks from Empire to come? And I go, that's not, not yet. We have to start, you know, from the bottom. We want to start with the, with the MCs. We want to start with the B-boys. We want to start with the DJs. We want to start with the graph artists. And we want to start with knowledge. No doubt. So that's why we're here today. And this is just a, a bunch of people coming together and helping us out to make this happen. And I called Chris, or I've been calling Chris for a little while, yep. and, and then last week he called me and he said, look, I'm gonna be here, and I said, can you come this week? And he says, okay, fine, why not? And, and see, he, Chris doesn't fly. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't get it. So you have to get him when you can get him, and I'm sure he goes through this all the time, but I'm grateful for you to be here today. Man. I'm Thank grateful you. to be here, man. That's exactly it. We, we, we're never here in the winter. The, the, the issue is that the minute Thanksgiving comes, or Thanksgiving comes, uh, the minute that holiday happens, we're gone. That, that's, that's when the snow's supposed to happen. That's when it's supposed to, you know, so, so we break out and go to Florida or California somewhere. That's right. That's but right. New York has no more winter. I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm like, yo, the snow's gonna hit, it's gonna hit, and it never hit. This was the first Christmas I was in a t-shirt <laughs> in my life here in New York City. I mean, if anybody has any thought about global warming, or, you know, like it's not real and all of that, they need to really come to New York because it was supposed to be like 20 below and it was like 55 degrees in, in Christmas. And it kept me here for a little longer. Yes. So here I am. Yes, yes. And, and yeah, man, it's an honor to be here with Ralph. Yo, you need to be, we need to be interviewing you for real. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to Cali or Florida with that. No problem. South Central all day. I will do it. But you, you know, Chris, you know, we could talk for, for hours and hours. And, you know, we've done some things together. You know, I remember, you know, we talked about, people always say the Bronx. But the first time I met Chris, or physically saw him, I think, was in Brooklyn. Right. You grew up in, in, in Brooklyn. I was born in Brooklyn. Born in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so um, then after that, how did you get to the Bronx? Wow. I, this is where I become a New Yorker in, in, in that sense. That my mother, uh, I, I was born in Park, well, what was called Park Slope, Brooklyn. Uh -huh. um, it was a place called Fisk Place, uh, mm -hmm. right around 4th Street, 5th Street, somewhere around 4th Avenue, 5th Avenue. So I was born there. 
Um, and I was born in August 20th, 1965. Three months after Malcolm X's assassination. And I say that because my mother was a huge Malcolm X supporter. And it really hurt her when, when, he, was, when, when he was assassinated. And so I pop out in August 20th. And just to speed, I'm gonna speed you up 40 years and come all the way back real quick. 40 years later, I realized that August 20th, 1619, the first 20 Africans get off of a Dutch ship at Jamestown, Virginia on August 20th on my birthday. Spin back all the way, August 20th now, 1965. So I'm born into this. I'm born into the 60 civil rights struggle. There's no option for me. There was other children, other people went outside and played and stuff. We was like, my mother was trying to sign us up with the Black Panther Party to get into the the uh, the, uh, for the free breakfast program that they had in the martial arts they was doing. So she wanted us to go in that direction, but it just wasn't popping in Brooklyn like that. Uh, Brooklyn had its own issues, you know, and, and was going through its own thing. So first my mother went to Harlem. By the way, single parent, my mom's single mother. My father disappeared when I was like one. He was uh, what they would call an illegal immigrant from Barbados, came here uh, illegally, knocked up moms, she's pregnant with me, he disappears. Actually, he got caught and deported, but never came back. So she's there with me, um, and actually my brother as well. She, she, he, uh, to, to the man's credit, I'll say he did stay for about one year. Um, which, which was the time I was born and then my brother Kenny was born. Mm -hmm. And so this is all Brooklyn, okay, three, four years. So 1967, same time Cool Herc enters New York. He's in the Bronx. My mom goes to Harlem and takes up a managing job at uh, Lincoln, no, what is it, what's the place called? Lennox Terrace. Oh, yeah. The Lennox Terrace mm -hmm. Complex. Mm -hmm. So she's the manager of all the, the, the whole complex. So she is what, this is the first time I heard the term super secretary. <laughs> this is the first time I heard the term. I had people calling, or she had people calling the house. So your mother's a super secretary. We need her now. Tell your mother she's a So we love her here. She said, get all these compliments and stuff. Uh, you know, straight executive in the 70s. So she's doing, uh, uh, Lennox Terrace, this, 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 this place. So she meets this dude, okay, um, named John Parker, who would eventually adopt me and my brother Kenny, which is where I get Parker from. This dude comes up, he works for the UN, he's a security guard at the UN. So him and mom, moms get together, nice family situation, we at the top floor, Lennox Terrace, he had two cars, you know, like, uh, and he actually had a Lincoln Continental and a sunroof Cadillac, right, straight up. Like, this dude actually had those two cars. We was doing pretty good. I know, I know where this is going because you, you referred to him as dude. So. Dude, dude, let me get right to it. Because, thank you, because dude started, um, Pulling guns on us. Dude started pulling guns. Every time we get in an argument with, with my mother, he run and go get the gap. Bitch, I'll kill you. 
we're like six, seven. We looking at this like, yo, this dude is crazy. So my mom's on some Harriet Tubman craziness. She says to us, don't say a word. We're out of here. Now, this was about six months before, okay? So this dude, you know, he, they make up and stuff. And they know, I love God, I love it's all right. Oh, it's just a little thing, da, da, da. Christmas Eve, 1972, I'm seven. My brother's six. Christmas Eve, snow on the ground, everything. My mother says, wake up. Let's go. We got up. We left her and me and Kenny, and we went to the Bronx, 1972. We landed at 1600 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx. Right there. We lived on the ninth floor. She, she was there. So now, obviously, dude wakes up. What's, what are you doing to me? I can hear him on the phone, you know. This is crazy. Oh, you know, they were married, everything. She right. just left them. Okay, so now he gets angry. He's starting to get violent. Now it's, I'll kill when I see you. I'm just going to do you. And so she links up with this Jamaican dude named Charles Headley. <laughs> Charles Headley takes us all under his wing. And I guess when he came around, John Parker disappeared. So now we... Rastafarians <laughs> in 73. Like, I remember listening to Peter Tosh. He was like, it was crazy, okay? But we loved it as young as young kids. We we was fascinated with it was Bruce Lee. It was the Black Panther Party and that whole thing, which turned out to be the gangs of New York. Um, this is, this, it's not, today we look back and say, oh, there were gangs in New York. These were not gangs like we know them today. This, these were spin-offs of the Black Panther Party. These, especially in New York, these were people who were trying to do what the Black Panther Party was doing. They tried to continue it, but from a, a much less organized level. So it became the gang now, um, in that sense. But we were surrounded by those kind of people. We looked up to them. Um, there was a guy uh, named um, Clarence 13X whose teachings was flooding the hood and uh, people, gods, and earths, and the 5% of percenters um, started to rise up. And we started to see ourselves. We started, a group of us started to differentiate ourselves from the system and, and real blackness. And this is, you know, Martin Luther King, fresh, killed right there in 1968. That was fresh on our minds. It was like, that was fresh. You know, like, this dude is right there. That, that's why today, you know, when, when, I, when I look at, not just rappers, but just black, black adults in the public eye, and I say, wow, you know, I guess if you weren't there, you, you would never really know. Like, there's no way you can watch Eye on the Prize, for instance, um, PBS series, and ignore that to side with whoever that you know has your people's, that doesn't have your people's interests in mind. 
And we do it every day and every day and every day. Well, how do we get to that place, you know, like, I mean, there's a number of reasons how we got to that place. <laughs> oh, no, no doubt. I'm sorry. Another that, book. That question on another book, right. So, but, you know, how do we get there today? It's 2016. You know, I'm just going to ask you about being homeless. Yes. That was my next question. It's a big deal right now on the news. I, every time I turn on the news, I say, yeah, but this has been going on all along. Like, why is it all of a sudden a big deal right now? Right. You know? And, I mean, your thoughts on that, because I, I have thoughts of my own. But, right. You know, it's not by mistake that there are people out on the street. Mm. You talked about when you were a young man coming up and you stayed in the library. We talked mm. about that. Tell them about that story. Mm. You know, it's somewhere it's warm, and it's a free space. It's somewhere to, to go, and you picked up books there. Some people might not want to do that. They right. just, so they go, or maybe they do, and right. then at night, it's, 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 the library closes. Mm -hmm. What do we do now in 2016? How do we get to that point? How did we get here? And as young people, do y'all even understand what that is right now, that we have our brothers and sisters in the street you know, right now, and not that that's your, your, your fault, but we can help in some way, and what can we do to begin to change the story? Mm. Well, you know, the story is grim. Uh, if I look at my history, which is biased to me, it is only my history that, that I'm speaking from in answering this question. This is not the truth. This is my history. To answer that question, um, you talked about homelessness, and then you talked about 2016. Character. I would start right here. Character. Character. You know, when I was coming up, say, let's zoom ahead. By the way, this guy, Charles Headley. He turned out to be crazy. Oh. <laughs> but you got me thinking when I was actually homeless, when I actually, when I left home. I'm about 16. And, uh, and, and uh, Charles Headley had already, my mother and him had already broke up around 1975. I was 10 years old. And, but I grew up in a house that it was always spiritual, always philosophical, always revolutionary. It's like there was never a time in the day my day didn't go by and somebody didn't ask me to recite the 42 negative confessions at 11. You know, the Egyptian Medunetra or, you know, coming forth by day and night. You couldn't just say coming forth by day. You had to say coming forth by day and night. Mm -hmm. You know, and there were elders that would smack you around. Uh, you know, especially the Rastafarian elders, they weren't playing. You know, at all. The cane would, when it's on the cane rise, you was just like, oh, man. You know, you're going to get whacked with this. You know, you had to know your Bible in front of the rosters. You, you had to know um, Islamic knowledge. The nation of Islam was huge. I'm Ralph McDaniels, and you're listening to Queens Public Library's Hip Hop Series with KRS-One. Fruit of Islam, nation of Islam. I remember one time I was walking down the street with a Bible, and a 5%er pulled me over on the side. He said, what you reading that book for? Don't you know the black man is God? And I didn't understand what he was saying. Black man, God, I, I'm just reading the Bible, man. Like, you know, this is just Jesus and that's it, you know. But I, it was that kind of work. Brooklyn was that. This was Brooklyn. 
You know, this was Queens. This was Parsons. Mm -hmm. Okay, this was Jamaica Ave. Had people on the corner stopping you. Spit your mathematics. What's today's mathematics? Like, you know, like people would stop you. So I, I grew up in that, and I say that quickly in answer to, to your question. Look at the look at the times. <laughs> so okay, there was that. So I come up now in that. When I left home, it was it was a, a discrepancy over school, and uh, I wasn't going to school. I was a truant. I, I really left school around fourteen. At sixth, seventh grade, I was done with school. Um, I was tall. I am tall, so I would go play basketball. I'd play for money. We'd be out in Wingate Park in Brooklyn by the Kings County Hospital, getting money, dunking on dudes. The courts were small. I'm like six, five. You know, it was just like it was just a field day. But the truant officer showed up to my mom's and gave her a letter. And said I haven't been in school in like three months. It was a betrayal right there in the house, and I was wrong. Because every day I'm telling my mother I'm going to school, and every day I'm going over to the basketball court. And so she was just fed up uh, and was like, you know, get out and this kind of thing. So I just left uh, and told her. She already knew as well from about 12. I said, I'm going to be an MC and I'm going to pursue philosophy. That's my life. She said, well, you can't eat with either one. <laughs> and she said, so what you going to do? How are you going to, you know, she was on me with that. I said, no, I'm going to be an MC. I think it's going to be something big. I think, and remember, you remember the days. This is before Rapper's Delight. This right. is before records. This is before all of that. It was just in the street. Yeah. And you had to be nice with yours in the street. Yeah. And so I was like, yo, this is where I'm going to be. My mother was like, no, nah, you're going to go to school. You're going to go to college, and you're going to get a job. I said, no, nah, Ma, you taught me better than that. And I left. And um, full of metaphysical knowledge. I just had a field. I had the best time of my life was when I was homeless. <laughs> and uh, it, it was, it was, it was I, I regret houses now, houses, mortgage. Oh, man. <laughs> it's just ridiculous now. But, it's, uh, but then it was a freedom and a, and a, a, a freedom um, and a peace to not own anything, to not be... Um, to not have anything, to, to not to not be uh, chained, you needed by someone. Even there was no family. Even there was no mother, no father, no sister, no brother. It's just me, and I'm in the street. And it's like, how, how do you want to make your life? If you can make your life in any way you want, how would you create it? And I said, well, I'd be an MC. That's what I would do. So I started writing rhymes in the uh, in Kings County Hospital because that was the other place, King County Hospital at night and the Brooklyn Public Library in the day. And so I go to the Brooklyn Public Library, sit there, read next philosophy book, the next theology book, the next mythology book, every day, all day, two, three books a day, because that's you had to have a book in front of you to be in the library. So <laughs> I, I had, I just used to just, I sometimes put mechanics, I had one time I put a mechanics book. Just somebody, I, I just took a book, I put it in front of me, and I was trying to front, like I was just gonna, yo, just let me put a book in front of me and catch a wink here. And I got into the book. And it opened my eyes because this was like, wow, never judge a book by its cover. It's deeper than just um, prejudice. Mm -hmm. You know, never really judge a book by its cover. Really. Uh, open it. Look at it. You know, don't just look at the cover. Look at it, you know. And uh, so to come back to your, to, to your question, 
This was homelessness for me. It was the best time of my life. I'm studying. I'm living in New York. I'm out. I know what I'm going to be. I know what I'm going to do. And so I said, let's just get to it. Now, the challenge. When I got to the Human Resources Administration, that's when I realized what you're saying. That there is a system. It's a system that makes people believe they're stupid for failing. When there is an actual, deliberate pressure against you succeeding. And when you study philosophy, you learn that this is all social engineering. In fact, the more you oppress a people, the better they get. So look at the weirdness right here. The more you hold a people down, the more you crush a people, the more they rise, push, struggle. If black history didn't teach us one thing, it shows the immortality of the human soul. That's the entirety of black history. It, we show the immortality of the soul. We've been through everything. As a people. And here we are still talking, me and Ralph chilling right here like this, like slavery never happened. Like we just chilling, just talking like this, like yo, and everybody's in the room to each other like this. Like millions of us didn't die, didn't work, killed, left in the middle of a horrible situation. This is not detachment. Because we feel it, we know it, that's why we all here in the room right now. But there's a level of consciousness that, that, the oppressed, I can't even say black people in this instance, I have to say the oppressed. When human beings are oppressed, you get the best art. You get, you get the best. So, America's out to oppress its people. For the good of the nation. <laughs> China is a good example of this. Where we used to look back in the days and say, Oh, they're in sweatshops working for five cents a day. How could you wear Nikes, Adidas, or any of these people? And it was right. Like, wow, you know what? The shoe actually costs five cents, ten cents. Over here in America, it's $120. Something is wrong. But now you do the investigation. Let's go to China. Let's go to Shanghai. Let's look and look. Let's look at the Chinese people and look at the economy. Here's what the issue is. The whole Chinese economy can exist on 25 cents. Nobody over there starving. We fat, greedy Americans. <laughs> Overfed, overrested, over everything. We say I will not work for less than $15 an hour. Now, dude in Malaysia, his whole economy, the whole Malaysian country, just say Malaysia, I'm getting off China, go to Malaysia. Malaysia's whole economy, a man can feed himself and six other people for $5 a week. We in America, we look down on that. We say, oh, they're peasants. They're this, they're that. No, they've mastered their economy.
right, they're working for five cents because they only need two cents. They're actually overpaid. <laughs> we in America are thinking, oh, I need $15, I need $10, I need this, I need that. We're the highest paid unemployed people in the world. Wow. Wow. The highest paid unemployed. So, put a period on your question. Okay. I'll put a period on it. So, homelessness is by design, but it also pertains to your character. When I was at the library, others were at the liquor store. When I was writing rhymes in, in Kings, I heard a lot of MCs was dope. I used to go to the jams. I saw dudes on the mic better than me. I'm watching them, trying to get some style, trying to see what it is. Them dudes in jail. That's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. Not because I'm all dope, nah. The other people that said they was, they was MCs and DJs and so on, they lost their vision. For one reason or another, they stopped. 1977, 78, hip-hop is starting to, Sugar Hill Records is starting to come about. 79, 80, 81, uh, guys like the, the Cold Crush, all of these guys are starting to hit the scene. The early, what some people call the first generation, what the hip-hop is called, first generation. I don't know if that's true or not, but this is what it Say is. That. Okay, this is what it is. Let's move it up to your first record, Criminal Minded. If, if I'm right, it's the first album. Um, you are correct. <clears throat> but from a scholarly, I'm in a library. <laughs> that, that was the first hit record. That was the first successful record. The, my first record was on a small label named Zakia Records. Mm -hmm. And uh, we was called Scott LaRock and the Celebrity Three. And it was three of us. <laughs> Myself, Jerry Levi, and MC Quality, a female. It was the first time you had two dudes and a female with a DJ uh, happening, but we was very small. Um, well, you mentioned Scott O'Rock, so. Yeah. One hand in the air for Scott O'Rock right now, if you know what I'm talking about. One hand in the air for Scott O'Rock. So, you know, that record was called Advance. Uh, we have got to advance. And I was talking about nuclear war. I wrote the whole record and gave the pieces to the other MCs and, and we did the record. And uh, it was talking about nuclear war and, and we couldn't sign it nowhere. This is 1985. Couldn't take it nowhere. Mind you, I'm homeless. I'm in the street. Matter of fact, I have to rewind um, because we'll be out of context. Fast forward, the time you're talking about my first record, 1986, Criminal Minded. Go back to the beginning of 85. I'm at 166th Street in Boston Road, men's shelter in the Bronx. 740 dudes, most out of jail. Come out of prison, they put you in the shelter, welfare. So the shelter is like prison, but you can go outside. <laughs> and so we in this situation. Situation meaning that the homeless situation is such that when you get there, you're always better off when you arrive than when you leave. You're, oh, I don't understand. I don't, that, this is the math of it. And I've seen it happen to hundreds of people. You get there, you're vibrant. 
I say, listen, it's just going to be one week, and I'm out of here. I'm only staying in this bed just one week. I ain't like these dudes around here. I'm da 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 da. One week, two weeks, three weeks. I see it. I see why I watch people. A, a guy named Frankie, Italian gentleman. Dude was nice with his. He's the one that hit me to Italian culture. He's the one that told me about the, the beef between the Northern Italians and the Southern Italians. How it's just not about Italian. Uh, that they have their own little riff amongst themselves. And I'm learning this in the shelter. So this is my Italian friend, Jimmy. Well, Jimmy was 54, and I was about 22. And Jimmy was just, you know, just talking, you know, World War II. We're the greatest generation. You know, he's doing all that. And, um... I watched him go crazy. I, I watched this man. He came in. He was vibrant. We used to talk about history and all that. And he used to say, I ain't like all these people here. I'm getting out. Well, about eight months later, they were wheeling him out in a it had to strap him down in the, in the thing and wheel him out. It was, it was like, I don't know what they call it. It wasn't a stretcher. It, it, he was standing up like like Lecter, like, a Hannibal, like a Hannibal Lecter. They had dude up like this and wheeling him out. And I was like, wow. He lost it. I say that as an example that the shelter system slowly wears you down. It makes its reality your reality. You start showing up on time for your meal ticket. You feel comfortable just lining up to eat. I'll give you an example. Like, I was in the shelter system so crazy. I'm, and I'm skipping over all kinds of stuff, like how I met Justice, mm -hmm. all type of riots in the shelter. I'm skipping over all that. The shelter system wearing you down. It, let me say this. And, and I don't want to dwell here because I want to get to the first album. It makes you think that you're succeeding when you're not. Every time you think you're succeeding, it's, it's, you're succeeding in its reality, in its paradigm, in its matrix. You could stay out um, two more hours. Here's a late pass. You had to get a late pass to stay out past 8 o'clock. And you had to get that late pass in the morning. Thank you. So if you wanted to get out, I think... Can I stay out late? This is 50, 60-year-old men, 30-year-old men, 40-year-old men. Can I eat? Can I go outside and play? Can I? So you, you say, I'm not going to be here for two more weeks, but three more weeks. And you start liking the food. You start asking for seconds. You start asking, when is the next time the chicken's going to come? Because it only comes on Wednesday. So you start thinking about the chicken on Wednesday and it's Friday. And so your mind starts going in the direction of the shelter. After a while, you're not thinking about reality. You're not thinking about the world or anything. You're thinking about this reality. And I think it's the same for people in prison as well or an insane asylum. Any institutionalized situation, sort of like school. I'm Ralph McDaniels, and you're listening to Queens Public Library's Hip Hop Series with KRS-One.